This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. Joining me today is Stanford Professor Mark Jacobson to discuss his just-published book, No Miracles Needed, How Today's Technology Can Save Our Climate and Clean Our Air. Professor Jacobson, Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, David. Professor Jacobson's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, as Professor Jacobson notes in his intro, and as frequent listeners of this podcast are well aware, air pollution, largely the result of fossil fuel combustion or pollution, annually accounts for approximately 7 million deaths and millions of health injuries worldwide. Professor Jacobson also notes after heart disease, fossil fuel pollution is the second leading cause of death and illness worldwide, and among other things is responsible for half of all pneumonia deaths worldwide among children aged five and younger. As I've noted previously, the cost to human health is such that even if coal that supplies over a third of global electrical generation was free, it would still be unaffordable. Listeners may recall two years ago, last month, I interviewed Professor Jacobson regarding his text, 100% Clean Energy and Storage for Everything. I noted in my intro to that 2021 interview, Professor Jacobson has argued since 09, 100% of the world's energy supply could be produced via solar, wind, and water power within 20 to 30 years, a comment he repeats in this volume. The barriers to 100% conversion to renewables were not, he continues to argue, technological or even economic, but social and political. In No Miracles, Mark, in some argues, we can convert to 80% wind, water, and solar by 2030 and 100% by 2050, ideally by 2035. Just as an aside, to date, 62 countries have committed to 100% all-electric, 19 U.S. states, to renewable by 32, 180 cities and counties have committed to the same, and 400 companies worldwide. So we're making progress. So with that, uh, Marcus, background, you are argue in No Miracles, uh, uh, basically that uh, converting solves for three problems simultaneously. What are they? Well, thanks. The, air, the main three problems are air pollution, which, as you mentioned, kills 7 million people yearly, including 20% of these are children under the age of five years old, and uh, causes illness to hundreds of millions more per year. And then global warming is the second major problem. Uh, it's already causing devastation worldwide. And then the third problem is energy insecurity. I mean, fossil fuels are limited resources. They will run out over time, and that will result in uh, the economic, social, and political instability. In addition, several countries have control of the energy of other countries, and as we see in Europe right now, that can result in uh, blackmail uh, over energy. Uh, also, long-distance transport of, of fossil fuels over the oceans can cause and does cause uh, prices in island countries to be astronomical for electricity and transportation fuels. So these are just some of the energy and security problems we face. Thank you, Mark, for that. Just to say, I'm actually interviewing, you may know Netta Crawford's book out on um, 
the Department of Defense and their um, fossil fuel consumption. So I talk with her in two weeks. So let's move on. Um, uh, the book's title is based on the fact technologies exist today to electrify or provide direct heat for all energy from, again, wind, water, and solar sources, uh, to st- also to store efficient energy via moreover batteries and transmit electricity over long distances. So um, these technologies exist today. Can you give the listener a brief overview of what these technologies are? I think listeners have some understanding of heat pumps, et cetera, but just to give an overview of what sure. these technologies are. Yeah, well, we call the overall system a wind, water, solar system. And the idea is to electrify all energy sectors and then provide the electricity with just wind, water, and solar. And there will be some some direct heat, but it's also from wind, water, and solar. And the main energy sectors are electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry. And so there are, in terms of wind, water, solar, there are electricity generators. So those include onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, concentrated solar power, uh, geothermal electricity, hydroelectricity, and small amounts of tidal wave power. There's also some heat from wind, water, solar, uh, both solar heat and geothermal heat. And then there's storage. Wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. So we need storage. There's electricity storage, heat storage, cold storage, and then some hydrogen for storage. So there are many types of electricity storage options. Uh, the most, the largest right now is, well, hydroelectric dams are basically big batteries. And then pumped hydroelectric storage is the biggest, uh, next biggest type of storage there is in terms of electricity storage. And then batteries themselves, concentrated solar power has storage associated with it, flywheels, compressed air storage, gravitational storage with solid masses. These are all existing storage technologies. And batteries are the ones that are probably going to grow the most in the future just because of their relatively small size, easy to permit, and they're very effective. They can produce electricity in milliseconds, uh, which is much larger than, much faster than uh, natural gas, which can take uh, five to 20 minutes to get to 100% uh, electricity generation. Then and we don't, and we need heat storage, which include water tank heat can be stored in water tanks underground and boreholes, water pits, and aquifers, and also in materials. And then cold storage will also be in water tanks and ice primarily, and then hydrogen your storage tanks. And then we need electric appliances and machines, so electric heat pumps for heating and cooling buildings, for water and air heating that is in buildings and air conditioning. Uh, you can use a heat pump for a dryer, for a closed dryer as well. They're, they use one-fourth the energy as natural gas. Uh, electric induction cooktops to replace natural gas stoves. Use LED lights, very efficient, or so energy-efficient appliances. Electric leaf blowers, electric lawn mowers. These are all existing technologies. Uh, for transportation, primarily electric vehicles, battery electric vehicles. Some vehicles will be hydrogen fuel cell. Those will be primarily very long distance, like aircraft, long distance ships, very long distance trains and trucks, uh, and long distance military vehicles, and but not passenger vehicles. It's much more efficient to have batteries for passenger vehicles than hydrogen fuel cell electric passenger vehicles. For And then we also need for industry, we'll have electric arc furnaces, induction furnaces, resistance furnaces. furnaces. These are for high temperature processes and will replace burning of coal, oil, and gas, and biofuels for heat uh, in industry. And 
uh, yeah, there are other electric appliances will need an efficient grid, so it enhance the grid a little bit more, more long distance, uh, high voltage, long distance transmission. And we would, uh, and what's also called demand response on the grid, utilities will give people incentives to shift the time of their electricity use. So when you combine all these technologies with uh, the generation and the storage, uh, you can actually keep the grid stable 100% of the time. And that's what most people are worried about uh, when we transition to entirely renewable energy. So anyway, that's a nutshell of the wind, water, Thank solar system. Thank you. I was going to, per your last point, I was, I was going to say, particularly if you live in Texas, of course, California is getting there with its wildfires. Um, you do give a, uh, an example, which is your home, which is all electric. And sadly, we won't uh, likely have time to get to that. But I did want to mention that for the listener uh, to look. You do provide data on how you engineered your home and the results there uh, in, in is providing power. So I do want to make note of that. Not, not to be... Um, Picky, you do say at one point technologies are available, and you did suggest in your answer uh, through hydrogen cells for long-distance air and marine transportation. That's We may not be altogether there. And then, of course, there are industries, I'm sure you're well aware, termed hard to abate, uh, steel and cement. What, what comments can you make in, in that regard? Well, we have about 95% of the technologies Correct. that we need for entire transition. So the 5% we don't have are primarily long-distance aircraft and ships and some industrial processes. So although for long-distance aircraft and ships, as I mentioned, we'd probably use hydrogen fuel cells, and we know how to do that. And it's just a matter of actually implementing and commercializing, well, testing and commercializing. So ideally, that will take – that'll be the last to transition, but it'll take on the order – of five to 10 more years to do that. So hopefully we can get all the technologies by no later than 2025, sorry, 2035, um, ideally before that. In terms of industry, well, steel, there is actually a solution and it's actually been uh, put in place in Sweden, uh, which is hydrogen, using hydrogen instead of uh, coal or coke for converting iron oxide to pure iron. Right now, iron oxide is converted to pure iron with coke or coal of very high temperature and that releases co2 to the air through a chemical process in addition to co2 being emitted uh, from burning fuels to create the high temperatures now instead if you use hydrogen where the hydrogen is produced with wind water and solar you can do the same thing convert iron oxide to pure iron with zero emissions of carbon for that process and also you don't need as high of temperatures and you can obtain that higher the temperatures you do need with wind, water, solar, electricity in an arc furnace or resistance furnace. And then for the rest of the process, you can also use uh, an arc furnace, which is run on clean renewable electricity. So there's already a method and it was put in place in Sweden in a plant last year and they're producing uh, uh, green steel that's with hydrogen and with 100% renewable uh, electricity. So you end up reducing overall about 98% of carbon emissions with this process. And in fact, and Sweden found that this works so well, they're going to convert all their steel plants. And that's what we need to do worldwide. In terms of cement, the alternative to Portland cement, which also has what are called process emissions or chemically produced CO2, uh, in addition to CO2 from heating, uh, there's a geopolymer cement, which is a method to produce cement without CO2. And that's, in fact, there's an entire airport in Australia uh, that was built on geopolymer cement. And that works. And there's another comp there's another type of cement called ferrock that that works. And there's cement recycling of existing cement. Um, so there's 
you know, so there are alternatives to Portland cement that uh, don't emit uh, CO2 hardly at all. And, uh, and that we do, it would be nice to have even more alternatives. So that's something that, you know, more work can be done on. Okay, thank you. It would be nice if we poured less cement for, say, sidewalks, but let's, let's, let's move on. Exactly. <laughs> you, um, you, you did a recent discussion for the Samuel Lawrence Foundation, and I'll note the link to that uh, YouTube video. I note because you do have a great answer during that conversation about um, uh, materials for batteries. The, the discussion always is uh, mining lithium, whether there's an adequate amount, and then you make – I was very fascinated by your answer relative to – relative to the amount that the Salton Sea could provide uh, in lithium. Uh, maybe we'll just save if we have time. Let's, I'd like to move on, though. What, what I found most interesting, possibly, is, is you discuss again, as you did in your text in, in 21, the efficiency you get out of uh, wind, water, and solar versus uh, fossil fuel-generated uh, power. Uh, so, for example, uh, battery electric vehicles versus uh, fossil fuel vehicles are far more efficient. Can you can you give a general overview of Primer on the massive improvement in efficiency converting to WWS? Yeah, sure. I mean, worldwide, if we've calculated that if we convert for all energy sectors to wind, water, and solar, that's electrifying all energy and then providing electricity with wind, water, solar, we, our energy requirements would go down about 56%. That's due to five reasons. And one, as you mentioned, is the efficiency of electric transportation versus combustion transportation. Uh, most people don't realize, but about 80% of all the energy in gasoline or diesel actually gets wasted as heat. Mm -hmm. And so the only 20, only 20% 20 of the energy is used to move a car. Whereas an electric vehicle, about it's the opposite. It's about 20% of the energy in the electricity gets wasted as heat and 80% gets to move the car. So you end up with a factor of four you can go four times further with the same energy or in other words it takes the same one-fourth the energy to go the same distance with an electric car mm -hmm. so average worldwide when you across all energy sectors that's about a 22 to 22 to 23 percent reduction of world power demand if we electrified transportation and then the other type of efficiencies with heat pumps heat pumps use one-fourth the energy as natural gas or combustion other types of combustion or even electric resistance heating so going to heat pumps it reduces another 15% of energy worldwide. And then 11 to 12% of all energy worldwide is used to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels in uranium. With wind, water, solar, we would eliminate all that energy. So there's another 11% reduction of demand. And then about 4% of all, we did reduce for, uh, energy by another 4% by going to electrified industry, and then finally, another 6 to 7% reduction due to end-use energy efficiency improvements and reducing energy use beyond what's expected in a business-as-usual case. So that all adds up to around 56% reduction worldwide. Right. You say by uh, 2050, you calculated that the 50% would mean by that year, we have a reduction from 20.4 to 8.9 terawatts of electricity needed worldwide. So... Uh, very, yeah. uh, if that's not motivating, I don't really know what is. Let me move to another important uh, aspect of your work, and that is you have a chapter titled What Doesn't Work. It's your lengthiest chapter. It's 60-plus pages in which you, at length, dismiss several policy alternatives uh, frequently advertised under what's termed the all-the-above strategy. And since this is a policy uh, podcast, I did want to spend some time on this. 
you identify uh, seven uh, areas of uh, of why nots. So you uh, including why not biomass, why not gray, blue, or brown hydrogen, why not direct air capture, why not geoengineering, and then you give, again, exhaustive answers for why these alternatives are, are not comparatively uh, or do not comparatively make sense. So let me focus on uh, two, if we have time. But let's start with why not carbon capture. And I note that because, as you're probably aware, there were tax subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act signed by the president last August. And I note, too, because just last week there was bipartisan legislation introduced in both houses, of course, as it relates to um, further extending or creating parity between uh, credits for certain types of carbon capture. So that policy uh, still has uh, enjoys a lot of support. So why not carbon capture? Well, carbon capture is basically a tax on low-income people because it's so this is the first thing. I mean, it costs a lot of money for the equipment and to and for the energy to run the equipment. And if you just add it to a coal electric power plant, that's just additional cost to that coal power plant. And who pays the cost of that mm-hmm. electricity? It's it's well, who pays the highest fraction of their income for electricity? It's, it's uh, low income people, and so they actually end up footing the bill for most of this carbon capture equipment. But so it takes. If you add carbon capture to a coal plant, it takes 30% of the electricity of the coal plant. So you need 30% more coal just to run the carbon capture equipment. That means 30% more mining of coal and pollution upstream during the mining and transport of the coal, and 30% more air pollution emissions from the coal plant, as well as 30% more CO2 emissions. So you are, but you're capturing a portion of the CO2 emissions, but you're capturing a a fraction of the additional 30%. And so it's not just the emissions from the uh, coal plant, but you're not capturing any other air pollutants. So all other air pollutants go up 30%. So just to summarize, you're uh, increasing air pollution by 30% by adding carbon capture to any type of equipment, like whether it's natural gas, uh, even if it's for cement, you need more, you need energy to run that. And so that energy is coming from somewhere. If it's coming from more fossil fuels, then there's more direct air pollution. But if it's coming from a renewable source, some people claim, well, then that's clean. But it's not because that renewable source now can no longer replace fossil fossil fuel power plants on the grid. And so you're preventing pollution reduction from a fossil fuel power plant by using renewables to power capture equipment. So no matter how you slice it, you're always increasing air pollution with carbon capture. You're always increasing fossil fuel mining with carbon capture. You're always increasing fossil fuel infrastructure with carbon capture. And you're hardly reducing any carbon because, first of all, the carbon efficiency, the efficiency of capture is not 90% as claimed by the industry. On average, over a year, based on actual data from multiple plants, it's between 20 and 80%. And then, but then again, you have no, you're not capturing any of the upstream emissions of the fuel, and you need more energy that you're only capturing a portion of. Let me give you an example of some actual total numbers. So in the United States, there's only one coal plant or any type of fossil fuel electricity generating plant with carbon capture added to it. It was the Texas Parish plant. started operating uh, in 2000 into 2016. And it closed in 2019 due to its inefficiency. It cost $1 billion, the carbon capture equipment did, added to the coal plant. And to run the power, 
carbon capture equipment added to the coal plant. They actually built a natural gas plant and none of the emissions from the natural gas plant were captured. There was new mining of natural gas. And so there were no, all the CO2 and air pollution emissions from the mining went right to the air. CO2 and air pollution pollutants from the natural gas plant itself went right to the air. None of that was captured. The efficiency of capture at the coal plant stack was uh, in the first year was around 60%. And uh, 55% actually, I think in the second year after there was 65%. And nothing was captured from the mining of the coal. So when you added it all up, uh, over before even accounting for what happened to the CO2 after it was captured, only 11 to 20% of the total CO2 emissions from this combined natural gas coal facility plus the mining of it was captured over a 20 to 100 year time frame uh, when we're looking at the impacts of, you know, if we count, calculate emissions of the CO2 plus the methane multiplied by its global warming potential, it's, Etc. Anyway, only 11 to 20 percent of the carbon equivalent emissions were captured, and that's before we counted for what happened to it. Now, what happened to the CO2 after it was captured? Well, it was piped to a nearby oil field, where it was the CO2 is combined with the oil to enhance the uh, oil recovery from the ground, and during that process, 40 percent of the CO2 goes right back to the air. So, really, the capture rate was 7 to 12 percent, uh, not even 11 to 20 percent. And this is trivial considering how much this cost and how much additional air pollution this resulted in and how much fossil fuel infrastructure this increased. So this is just a scam. I mean, it does nothing except for raise costs and not hardly capture any carbon and increase air pollution, increase fossil fuel infrastructure. It's really just a method to keep the fossil fuel industry in business. You know, I, it's it's the definition of insanity. Uh, I mean, good. You know, it doesn't even good money after bad doesn't even do it justice. Uh, so I, I I appreciate that. I'd ask you if you wanted to pick any of these others. I identified all seven, um, but but maybe we'll get back to uh, the other one, which gets gets mostly attention is natural gas as a bridge fuel. But but let's let's move on. So I want to have time for to discuss specifically the healthcare industry. So that's, um, you're probably well aware that U.S. healthcare industry is the largest industry and the largest economy in the world. And I'm sure you know it accounts for about 9% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, this is basically a problem. Let's just limit it to scope one and two emissions. So um, that would be the, say for hospitals, the power they directly emit and then scope two, the power that they purchase. So what, what would you recommend relative to hospital policy to decarbonize? Well, the first thing for any business or building is to uh, electrify all energy they can. And so hospitals use electricity for, already use a lot of electricity for lights and equipment. Uh, but for heating, for example, they should go, a lot of them will use natural gas for heating. So going to electric heat pumps is the first thing. And for air and water heating, in particular, um, instead of going to, instead of backup diesel generators, lots of hospitals have a lot of backup diesel generators. Mm-hmm. We need to go to batteries uh, powered by that are t- where the electricity is stored, and that can be connected to the grid. So you, the batteries are first you know, they're charged with grid electricity, but then if the power goes out, then they have a little electricity available um, for when the battery. Uh, 
for when it's needed, when the electricity is needed. Of course, you'll need a sufficient number of batteries, of course, but it's not only batteries, but you can also use hydrogen fuel cell electricity. Um, you know, batteries are more efficient, but hydrogen fuel cells, you can buy cheaper storage, so you can for longer term storage, or for, if you expect a longer outage, you might, it's really gonna be a combination of a, a really good solution for, let's say a microgrid, which the hospital in an outage will become a mi microgrid. The best solution is a combination of batteries and hydrogen fuel cell electricity uh, to account for when you, if, if it's gonna be a long outage. Uh, so that by just by, you know, getting rid of all gas in the building, electrifying all processes that use natural gas right now or other type of fossil fuel. Uh, then in terms of what they purchase, of course, you know, they don't really have control of what other companies that they're purchasing from uh, what they produce, however, they can choose suppliers that run on 100% renewable energy. There are over 400 international companies now that have committed to 100% renewable energy in their global operations. So there are and many bigger companies now trying to force smaller companies that they, as the, who are their suppliers to go to 100% renewable. So I think that's uh, the next step that they can take. Well, the other type of emissions or vehicles that go into in and out of hospitals, uh, workers and ambulances. So we need to electrify those as well. And, that, and doing so will reduce costs significantly because driving an electric vehicle uses uh, one fourth the energy as driving a gasoline vehicle, uh, just because for the reason that it's much more efficient to drive an electric vehicle. So you can save tens of thousands of dollars over a life of an electric vehicle versus a gasoline lean vehicle metal that amount that you're saving is going to only increase over time as gasoline prices have only been going up uh, lately you know the other thing you remind me of in this discussion is your strategy sort of makes moot this you know now in this debate between carbon neutral and net zero it sort of makes that moot because there's no need for sort of the, the carbon neutral credit purchasing uh idea um in that we're not burning things. I mean, the bottom line is to start stop burning things, digging the hole, however you want to phrase it. You have a chapter on policies needed. Uh, you talk about f financial incentives or subsidies. Um, you specifically note uh, output subsidies to correct for the youth term, the, the uh, uh, tragedy of the commons. These are sort of unpaid for externalized costs, basically air pollution. But I'm imagining you wrote this book before the IRA, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, was passed which again was signed last August, you're probably well aware there, as I noted, there are subsidies for sort of the all of the above strategy, which I'm sure, as you noted, you're not in favor appropriately. Uh, there are tax credits. These are called energy security. There are about 40 of them. What's your beat or read or take on, on, on the extent to which uh, those subsidies, they were guesstimated about at over the 10-year period at $369 billion in some, although... Some banks have thought um, they could go as high as 800 or more uh, billion. But how, how effective do you think that those will play out? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act has some good subsidies, but also bad subsidies. And I would say 60% good and 40% bad. The good ones are for renewables like wind and solar and also batteries and other types of storage, uh, energy efficiency in buildings, electric heat pumps, electric vehicles, uh, these are all good subsidies. Mm -hmm. Bad subsidies, they're, they're basically funding every bad technology, carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, 
small modular nuclear reactors, conventional nuclear reactors that exist that can't afford to stay open, so they're subsidized. They want to subsidize them through the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, biofuels and biomass, you know, these are just polluting technologies that uh, really uh, don't help in terms of carbon emissions and definitely increase air pollution. Um, so there, you know, we just can't afford to waste time on solutions that are not useful. And we know carbon capture is not useful. We know direct air capture is not useful. We know blue hydrogen, which is basically just producing hydrogen from natural gas and adding carbon capture, which I just said is not useful. So that's also not useful. Um, green hydrogen is the only type of hydrogen we should be producing. And there is, there is subsidy for green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is hydrogen produced from wind, water, solar, electricity. Uh, and we don't want other, any other type of hydrogen except for green hydrogen. And yeah, so there's just, we need to focus on technologies that we know work and that we can implement in a short amount of time. We can't invest like in nuclear, existing nuclear plants in liberalized markets like in North America and Europe take between 17 and 21 years now between planning and operation. There isn't, um, yeah, there's like in France, there's one that's taking 19 years. In Finland, there's one that just finished after 21 years. In England, there's one that's estimated to take uh, about 18 years. In the U.S., there's only two reactors being built in Georgia, and they're on year 17 and 18 so we're talking a long, long time, and then they cost, in the end, eight times more per kilowatt hour of electricity generated than new wind or solar. And they have weapons proliferation risk, meltdown risk, uranium mining, lung cancer deaths due to 10, 10% of all uranium miners underground died of lung cancer. And there's waste you have to store for 200,000 years. And there's still CO2 emissions from these nuclear plants. I mean, CO2 equivalent emissions. Uh, that are equivalent to about nine to 37 times the emissions of wind. So even though that's much less than from natural gas, it's still higher than wind. It's not zero carbon at all. So that's it's just a boondoggle. Then small modular reactors uh, are not even proposed to be ready until 2030 just for test reactors. And they've already been studied for the last 10 years. And there is no evidence they won't be the same cost or even more than the conventional reactors. They'll have the same risks. They're smaller, so you can spread them around the world and spread nuclear weapons along with them uh, because nuclear weapons and energy are tied together for, because of similar know-how and knowledge. And five countries of the world have developed weapons under the guise of civilian nuclear energy programs. So, you know, there, there's long, uh, underground uranium mining risk will continue. The uh, waste issue, you, you, some, some small modular reactors, they claim they're going to have less waste. But that's at the expense of having higher uh, grade refined uranium and it's closer to weapons grade. So you're either going to have weapons proliferation or you're going to have more waste. So I don't know. It's just no free lunch with nuclear. So uh, just just for the listener to note, per the uh, International Energy Agency, they came out recently and, and concluded that global fossil fuel subsidies last year amounted to $1 trillion, sort of further your point about subsidies in the IRA. Let me maybe my last question is relative relative to what we should subsidize, um, and and the and the tragedy of the commons problem. Uh, my read is that you're you're suggesting that healthcare providers stay with healthcare, uh, be reimbursed or subsidized in part based on the units of renewable energy they produce or consume, 
uh, and or provided loan guarantees for energy efficient retrofits or solar microgrids. I'm assuming that would make sense to you? Uh, loan guarantees for yeah, microgrids. Yeah, I mean, well, m- microgrids are very useful. And for communities that are off the far away, remote communities that are off the grid and, you know, loan guarantees or, and, uh, well, having you know, policies put in place in each, if we're talking about the U.S., in each state to, uh, to help with the implementation uh, of these microgrids, because like a community just starting from scratch is not going to easily be able to just implement them from the get-go. Uh, you, do, you need a plan, and so it's, it really helps to have kind of a plan driven from the state or some agency or some or experts who can then advise on uh, putting in a microgrid. Right. You, you're probably aware in the IRA, the EPA was assigned to develop uh, a green bank, and that's the, that's the idea behind it, and it was funded or capitalized at $27 billion. So we'll see where that goes. In fact, the EPA just came out with their first uh, primer document on uh, trying to stand up uh, is green bank. So with that, uh, Mark, we're at about our time. Uh, so I p- appreciate this sort of whirlwind overview uh, again of the volume, uh, very detailed, uh, much more than we could cover in 30 odd minutes. So I appreciate the overview and I hope the book is is well considered and reviewed. So thank you again for your time, Mark. All right. Thank you, Dave. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.